Good morning, everyone. How much do you worry about pollution? I'm not talking today about carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide in the atmosphere or the unhealthy gases that apparently leak out of your kitchen stove even when it's turned off or litter in the national park or plastic in the ocean. Those are all important topics for another day. Today I want to ask you how much you worry about spiritual pollution. Spiritual pollution is not something that modern Australians talk about very much. But it does seem that a concern about being unclean lies somewhere deep in the human psyche. COVID rules certainly activated this area of anxiety. We had various sensible regulations about staying home if you're COVID positive, not visiting nursing homes if you've got symptoms and so on. But for some of us, and this might be you, this whole system stoked a deeper and less rational anxiety. Some people who were perfectly healthy would stay away from older people or large groups, not because they were scared of getting sick, but out of a deep fear of being that person who brought uncleanness into a group. The fear of bringing in pollution and infecting others. As humans, that fear of being polluted or being a source of pollution seems to actually be something quite deep within us. Now, in the Bible, it gives us several lenses on the topic of sin. What is sin? You can actually answer that in several ways. We can talk about sin in relational terms, as treating God badly, which damages our relationship. We're estranged and forgiveness is needed. That's one way of looking at sin. You can also look at sin in judicial terms. You can say, I've broken a law, I've become guilty And so a penalty must be paid. I suspect that these first two ways of looking at sin are fairly familiar to us. But the Bible has a third angle on sin, which is perhaps more foreign to you and me. Sin as pollution. Sin as something that makes you dirty. And what's needed is cleansing. This way of sin, looking at sin is less familiar to us, but it's a big part of what's going on in the book of Leviticus that we're looking at at the moment. As we reach Leviticus 16 today, we see that the people of Israel had a serious sin problem, a serious pollution problem. But their generous God provided a method for cleansing. Now, as we look at at what was going on for these folks back in the desert, 1,000 years BC, we're looking at people who live in a very different era to us, culturally, historically, philosophically, and also a different era in terms of how God deals with people. It's foreign to us. But as we look today at this ancient problem of pollution and the cleansing that God brings, I think it can give us a deeper and Tell it again. I think you had a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation for what Jesus has done for us. So my wife says that I'm good at explaining things. Let's try and get our heads into Leviticus 16 and see how we go. 
The ancient people of God have fairly recently been powerfully rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the desert of Sinai. The Lord has adopted them to be his special people. He's made a treaty with them. He's told them how to build a special tent, the tabernacle, in which he will dwell amongst his people. And so they've built this tent and it stands in the center of their camp and the cloud of God's presence has filled the tabernacle. Priests have been ordained to serve in this tent. But last Sunday in chapter 10, we were alerted to a terrifying danger that was present. Two of the young priests, Aaron's sons, got carried away. They attempted to worship God in a way that he had not commanded and they were destroyed by fire. Having the mighty saving God living amongst you is wonderful but also highly dangerous. God's tent, the tabernacle, is a lot like a nuclear reactor. A nuclear reactor can be an amazing source of power. And Dave Lankshire will be happy to tell you all about this after church if you've got a few hours spare. (laughs) A nuclear reactor is a wonderful source of power but also a source of terrible danger if it's not treated with due care. And it was the same with the tabernacle in the middle of their camp. Great power, but as we saw last Sunday, also great danger. Hopefully in your small groups during the week, you looked at chapters 11 to 15. Straight after that shocking incident with Aaron's sons, the Lord gave his people an elaborate code of purity. Don't eat this, don't touch that. Because the holy God was living amongst them, things that were unclean must be kept far away, outside the camp. The end of chapter 15 sums it up well. It says, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. But as you look through that purity code in chapters 11 to 15, you see that actually becoming ceremonially unclean was unavoidable. And it wasn't a sin to become unclean, but it was a sin to approach God in an unclean state. No impurity can come near the holy God. But what if you approach the tabernacle without realising that you're unclean? Uncleanness and sin was all around. These guys had a pollution problem. And this was a danger for individuals. The two sons of Aaron demonstrated that those who approach God wrongly can get destroyed. But it's also a danger for the community as a whole. Because as this pollution built up and seeped into the dwelling place of the holy God there was a danger that the holy God might depart. He might leave. And that would be a disaster. These people had been rescued out of Egypt by the mighty power of the Lord who was with them. And they're going to be brought successfully into the promised land by the mighty power of the Lord who is with them. But if the Lord abandons them to their own devices, they are finished. The pollution problem is a big deal. 
Now, at the beginning of Leviticus, the first week of this series, we learned about the various sacrifices that the people could offer at the tabernacle. And some of these sacrifices were simply acts of worship and thanksgiving to the Lord. But two of them, the sin offering and the uh, guilt offering, were for dealing with specific failures to keep God's laws. Those sacrifices could be offered at any time, but they would only be offered when someone was aware of a sin. And it seems that they only dealt with unintentional sins. What about sins that had remained undetected? What about sins done deliberately? The pollution of those sins would accumulate. And so in his kindness, God instituted the Day of Atonement. A very significant day. The Day of Atonement was the Day of Cleansing. I don't know if you're someone who does a spring clean of your house once a year. Many of us here live not too far from the N2 motorway. Uh, I'm one of those people. And after I'd been living here for about six months, I realised that anything I'd left uncovered in my carport would have this layer of pollution dust on it. It gradually accumulates. And if you're an organised and clean person, which I'm not really, then once a year you'll clean off that accumulated grime. The Day of Atonement was the one day when somebody would enter into the centre of the tabernacle to cleanse it from the spiritual pollution which had accumulated. But going into that space was no small matter. Remember, it's like a nuclear reactor. I used to work for a company that did the website for the Australian Nuclear Safety and Technology Organisation. At one time, one of our staff went to a meeting with this client at their office at Lucas Heights, where they have the one nuclear reactor in Australia. The only problem was that this colleague of mine forgot to take his ID with him. Uh, It was a big deal when he got to the front desk. Uh, Took quite a few phone calls. Eventually, they let him in, into the office building. But even with his ID, they were never going to let this website guy into the control room or into the reactor room. Not a chance. The tabernacle had this kind of layout like a nuclear reactor. It had an outer courtyard surrounded by a fence where the general people of Israel could bring their sacrifices. The altar of burnt offering was out there in the courtyard in front of the tent. Within the courtyard was the tent of meeting, the holy place. Only the priests could go in there. And the far end of this tent of meeting was separated off by a curtain. And that was the most holy place, the holy of holies. It was the place of God's presence on earth. Only the high priest could go in there and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Let's look at the procedure. There were some things he had to do to get ready. He had to wash his whole body with water. They didn't do that every day in those days. He had to change into special linen garments, all white, They didn't wear that every day, not even the priests. It's probably not a coincidence that this makes him look a bit like an angel. The high priest had to prepare animals for sin offerings and burnt offerings. 
And before entering into the most holy place, he had to generate a cloud of incense smoke to shield him from the presence of the Lord above the atonement cover on the ark. I said before it's like a nuclear reactor, but at this point it reminds me of an operating theatre. This guy has to scrub up. He has to change into sterile clothes. Aaron has to make sure he doesn't bring extra pollution with him into the most holy place. You might be surprised by the cleaning product that is used in this procedure. There's no detergent, there's no bleach, there's no Glen 20. The cleaning product used here is blood. To us, this is gross. You might be triggered by this. Let's just admit that. It's gross. Why blood? If you have a look at Leviticus 17 when you go home, the next chapter, it gives us some clues. In Leviticus, blood represents life. Sin and pollution are connected to death. And so the cleansing ceremony is using the substance of life to remove the pollution from God's place. The priest brings a bull's blood to atone for his own sin and a goat's blood for the sin of the people. Now, when you're cleaning your house, for example, if you um, spill something in the kitchen, you need to think about the order in which you clean things, right? Uh, I once knocked over a bottle of soy sauce in the kitchen and it just went everywhere. What happens when you do that, when it's all over the counter, dripping down the cabinets onto the floor? What do you clean first? Not the floor, right? If you grab a sponge, wipe the floor, and then the cabinet, then the bench, you've brought all those floor germs up onto your bench. Don't do it. You've got to start with a bench. There's the page I need. You've got to start with the bench. And that's what the high priest does here. He starts with the most holy place. He takes in the bull's blood for his own sins and sprinkles it seven times on the ark. Then he brings the goat's blood for the people's sins and sprinkles it seven times. Then he does the same to the rest of the tent of meeting, the holy place. The bull's blood is sprinkled seven times, the goat's blood seven times, and then he moves out to the altar which is outside in front of the tent. It needs to be cleansed too. He sprinkles it seven times with bull's blood, seven times with the goat's blood. And all of this is to cleanse the tabernacle from the spiritual pollution which has accumulated. Have a look at Leviticus 16, verse 16 with me. It explains, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And then down in verse 19, it explains the sprinkling of the altar outside, which is to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. So after the most holy place and the holy place and the altar in the courtyard have all been sprinkled, the tidying job is complete. One writer called Matthew Payne says, the pollution of sin has been washed and swept from the deepest, most holy room of the tabernacle outwards. All the pollution of Israel has been swept out the front door and now waited to be carried away entirely. 
Now, I don't want to make this sermon any more graphic than it already is, but I live in a house with a toddler who is toilet training. And so it's very clear to me that once you've used a paper towel to clean up some mess, you cannot just leave it lying around. You need to send that pollution far, far away. And that's what happens next with the cleansing of the tabernacle. This is where the most distinctive part of the Day of Atonement comes in. So far, we have animals sacrificed and blood sprinkled. This was normal for a sin offering. But there's a detail I've skipped over so far. Back in verse 5, Aaron was told to bring two goats for a sin offering. One to be slaughtered, but the other to be left alive as a scapegoat. This is one sin offering made up of two goats. That's unusual. Look with me at verse 20. And we'll see what this live goat is for. Verse 20 says, When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, then he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of somebody appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. The other offerings earlier in Leviticus involved the person making the offering laying one hand on the animal as a gesture of ownership. This is the sacrifice that I am making. But here with the scapegoat, the priest lays both hands on this animal. It's an act of transference. Take this stuff away. He confesses out loud all the different ways the Israelites have sinned. And he puts those things on the goat's head. The goat takes the sins of the people outside the camp into the wilderness, into the darkness, into the place of chaos, far away from the Lord's presence and far away from the Lord's people. The sinful and rebellious Israelites, who were stained already by their uncleanness and rebellion, they were the ones who deserved to be exiled far away from the Lord. But on this day of atonement, God has provided a way for their sins to be taken away while they remain in place. Their sins are carried away by a substitute. When all this is complete, the high priest changes out of his special linen clothes, washes again, and he offers a burnt offering for himself and the people as they recommit themselves to the God who will continue to live among them. And this was the practice for the solemn day of atonement to be observed every year on the tenth day of the seventh month. Okay, so we've got our minds around what was going on in the desert of Sinai for those ancient Israelites on the Day of Atonement. We are not ancient Israelites. We are not in the desert of Sinai. What should we make of all this? As a starting point, I want to point out this chapter shows us, again, the holiness of God. Having him near you is a big deal. Approaching him is something that has to be done with great care. 
But this chapter also shows us the kindness of our God. In his mercy, he provided a way for his people to be able to survive with him in their midst. As modern Christians, we're inclined to look at all this ancient sacrificial stuff and see it as a burden. And we think, oh, what a pain it must have been to have to sacrifice animals all the time and all these elaborate procedures. But actually, for them, it was, an elab- it was a wonderful blessing. Without it, they couldn't have had God living amongst them. It was a wonderful blessing, but it was not the permanent solution. The Day of Atonement cleared away the accumulated pollution once a year, but like the dust from the motorway, the pollution would soon build up again. Every year, the tabernacle had to be cleansed once more. But in Jesus... You and I have seen God's permanent solution to this issue of a holy God living with unholy people. Our second reading today was from Hebrews 9. And it shows us how Jesus is the high priest to end all high priests. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron and his successors had to offer a sin offering for their own sins before they could atone for the sins of the people. But our high priest, Jesus, although he was tempted in every way, he is entirely without sin. Aaron and his successors entered once a year beyond the curtain into God's throne room on earth. And once they'd done their job, they got out again quick smart. But Jesus has entered once for all time into God's actual throne room in heaven. And he sat down there and made himself comfortable. Hebrews also shows us how Jesus is the perfect sin offering. Aaron and his successors used the blood of bulls and goats for cleansing. The life of those animals was brought in to atone for a year's worth of sins. But Jesus' blood, the giving of his life, purifies us and wipes away the pollution of our sin forever, once for all. And like the scapegoat, Jesus is the one who has taken all our wickedness and rebellion, all our sins upon himself as he was led outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And from there, he carried our sins all the way to the depths of the grave. If spiritual pollution is like the dust from the motorway, the work of Jesus is a bit like the demolition of the motorway. He puts an end to that problem once for all. And in light of what we've learned from Leviticus, Hebrews chapter 10 has a verse that should blow our minds. I don't know if you're into Bible verses on fridge magnets with soothing graphics in the background. That might be a kind of thing. I reckon in the gift section of Kurong, it wouldn't be hard to find something a bit like this. Does this seem familiar? Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near to God. But that fridge magnet shouldn't have a soothing sunset in the background. It should have a brain explosion emoji. (laughs) Look at this section. Hebrews 10.19 says, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. It tells us to draw near to the holy God with assurance. 
because our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us and our bodies have been washed with pure water. When Aaron drew near to God, he had to generate a cloud of protective smoke so he wouldn't die. He had to wash himself in water and dress himself in special white clothes. He had to bring in the blood of a bull because of his sins and a goat because of the sins of the people. Once a year, he approached God's throne with a rightful fear and trembling. But if we belong to Jesus, we can now enter the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, with confidence. Right into the center of the nuclear reactor without dying. That's the kind of cleansing that Jesus has done on our polluted souls. Let's marvel at that. Let's not take that for granted. We live in a culture that says, draw near to God? Sure, why not? In fact, why hasn't God drawn near to me recently? But from Leviticus, we can see that being able to draw near to God is an extraordinary thing. God hasn't stopped being a consuming fire. God still dwells in inapproachable light. But if we are purified by the blood of Jesus, we can walk right into his throne room with confidence. At the beginning, we thought about how in the COVID era, the fear of the pollution we might be carrying sometimes made us keep our distance, stopping us from drawing near to people. But the purification that Jesus brings us means we can and should draw near to God with confidence. This will play out in our prayer life. Approaching God with confidence doesn't mean approaching him casually. God's not our buddy. He's the maker of the universe. It's incongruous to just blow up, bowl up to him and say, hey God, how are you going today? Just wanted to remind you that you owe me some good weather. That doesn't fit. Approaching with confidence also doesn't mean ignoring our ongoing sins. How was it that the scapegoat could carry all the people's sins away? It was as the people's representative confessed their sins over the goat. The high priest would say them all out loud with both hands on the animal. And so with both our hands on Jesus, we should confess our sins out loud so he can carry them away. But while we recognise who God is, and while we recognise the ongoing reality of our sin, we still should approach God with confidence because of Jesus. Confidently, not hesitantly, not cautiously, not apologetically. Confidently. If you belong to Jesus, God will never say to you, Ew, keep your dirty life and your messy problems away from me. If you belong to Jesus, you will never get struck down like Aaron's sons. You've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. So you can approach God confidently with all your needs all your concerns, all the worries and desires of your heart. You can call on him to work his mighty power in your life, to protect you, to strengthen you, to provide for you. What an amazing privilege when we're talking to the God who made the universe. And if we hold back from using that privilege, we're denying what Jesus has achieved for us.
Don't stand back. Because praise the Lord, Jesus has washed all your pollution away.